Chanel Prasad, you are our final guest of this mini-series, and I think that that will be really valuable for people because I think that you have a very broad understanding of so many different mechanisms when starting a business that I think you will help summarize a lot of the information we've heard and kind of bring it all together for people. So I'm hoping you can do a brief introduction of yourself. All right. Uh, thanks, Aaron. Uh, my name is Chanel. And I'm the founder and owner of Alpine Legal Services here in Chilliwack. We're a small law firm uh, focusing on real estate uh, business and wills and estates law. Um, before going into law, I was an accountant of a CPA. Um, and prior to that, I was a student for quite a while and also had other businesses that I was involved in. Um, but yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Let's get started with how entrepreneurship kind of entered your life. Um, could you tell us about if your parents had any involvement in that and how that moved you in the direction of being willing to take these sort of risks, start your own business um, and do it yourself? Yeah, so um, definitely started through uh, my parents. Um, so, you know, my dad came from Fiji in the 70s, and most immigrants at that time, they come to a new country, um, they work labor jobs mostly, um, because back where they came from, it's really difficult to afford any higher degree of education. So a lot of the public schools only go up to like grade four, right? Um, so if you want any, if you want to pursue higher education than that, you have to be able to afford it, right? Um, and then if university, and it's way more advanced. So a lot of people did not go to university, right? It wasn't a thing back then. Um, so you come to a new country, you try to learn the language, um, working labor jobs. And, you know, these jobs are minimum wage. They're tough on your body, working long hours. You're trying to learn a skilled trade. Um, so that's what my parents had to do, right? Just like other immigrant families that come here, um, you have to start from somewhere. Um, and my dad learned woodworking, right? So he really loves his trade, really loved woodworking, everything to do with it. And he really got good at it um, and then started getting promoted at the place he worked at. And he worked for two shops at the same time. So he'd work from um, 7 to 3 and then 3.30 to 11.30, midnight night um and then we just do that right five days a week and then the weekends he started to build furniture so you know places throw all the kind of scrap wood and then he would refurbish things and make really you know nice furniture out of it and then sell it right um because you need to have additional sources of income if you want to be able to afford a house one day um so that's what he started to do and then eventually it turned into um doing more full-scale cabinet projects and then from there taking the money um getting a shop getting more equipment and he learned how to also fix his own equipment so he would get um older machines fix them up uh, refurbish them and use them um these are ways you save money in the beginning right as opposed to going out there taking a loan buying all the new fancy stuff um he would find ways to you know, you do DIY, right? And, and he really has he really has a knack for it. Um, so I would sit there and watch, and you know, he's got a lot of friends in the trades as well. And you get to, and I used to work with him, right? So you meet a lot of people in the trades, and there's always a variety of people in any industry, right? Um, and you see the folks that um, you know they show up in the morning, and then they're done the workday, they clock out, and that's it. They go home. Um, you know, they do other things, but they're not interested in doing anything more than that, right? And they don't have the folks who are a bit more entrepreneurial, right? They might work another job. They might have a business on the weekends. They tr they're trying to build something, right? And then you see 
them succeed. You know, I've seen people who they learn a trade, they save some money, they have a business, and they start pulling money together with their other friends and family, they buy property um, to invest in in other cities, and then everything booms, right? Um, like a lot of immigrant families who bought properties in Abbotsford way back in the day. Right back then, um, I was for Chilliwack. Why would you even go there? Right, it was, it was so back. The back in the day, it was just it was farming. Right, and if you lived out there, what would you work? What would you do? Um, and then now they reap the rewards, right? Because now you know, look at these places. Right, so they made tons of money in real estate, and you know, but it all came from the will to do. Right. And so I would see things and I would see how my dad would um, make decisions in terms of getting equipment, right? Um, which jobs he would take on, how he would price them, how he would design things, and like how you interact with clients, right? And then he built himself a nice um, business and then um, does all kinds of custom projects because custom projects, it takes a lot more skill. And if you're someone who takes pride in what you do, then you love working on those projects where you know that. Nobody else can really do this. It's really tough and you have a lot of skill and you can pull it off and then the impacts, right? So you have customers that uh, they want a whole kitchen. They might have a nice, big, luxurious house. They want the whole kitchen redone. Um, we had clients with massive bars, like 20 foot counters, like it takes up like, it's almost like a movie theater, right? Um, it's all custom projects and then he loves that. And then the client hosts like a dinner party, Christmas party, the guests come and say, oh, wow, who did all your work, right? Um, so he loves doing the custom stuff. And so nowadays, you know, that's what he would do is take on those kinds of projects. But it was cool to see how that evolved over the years, right? Um, and if it wasn't for that, we definitely wouldn't have been able to, you know, do things like buy a house and have the middle class um, lifestyle, right? I think that that is really valuable for people to hear because I think that right now with entrepreneurs, we hear a lot of self-care. Take care of yourself, do something for yourself. And I think that I'd like to learn a little bit more about like what it was like to watch your dad who didn't really have an alternative. The alternative was less food on the table or less comfort in the home. Um, he was really trying to provide. It doesn't sound like he was living a lavish lifestyle when he was putting in all those hours. So I'm interested to know how that impacted you watching someone make such sacrifices and not have the, the self-care kind of ability. Well, it was definitely uh, very hard to... Uh to witness, right? Because um, you're watching someone who's working all the time, right? And then if they have any injuries, because this is all these these are all physical jobs, right? Um, and so it's not easy on the body. You need time to rest and recover. But he didn't really have that. And so there was one time, um, probably the worst moment was when he fell asleep on a saw. Like he was just exhausted, and you know, was working the late late shift, and then just fell asleep, and he lost his finger, right? Um, but you know, WCB will pay you right compensation, but it's never really enough. Like it wasn't really anything. I think he actually ended up losing if you consider the time it would take off to recover. Um, but he didn't have much time then to recover. He had to go back to work, right? Um, and so he just wrapped up his finger and had to go back to work, right? Um, so and he had no choice. Like what else are you gonna do? Right. Um, so it was really hard to kind of see someone go through that. And as a kid, you don't really understand it too much because you're not an adult. You don't understand what it takes to do that. And I was an adult to look at that. I'm like, wow, you know, you have to really pull through. Right. And um, I think for him, it came down to, you know, you have kids, you have a family, they rely on you and their future depends on you. Right. And, you know, our futures will be a lot easier um, if as a parent, you're willing to do more. Right. Um, so that was his mentality. And so that's why he did what he could and sacrificed all those years to, to do that, right? Um, which, you know, that's admirable because it's extremely difficult to do, 
right? Um, and then I see some of my um, peers from that time um, who, you know, their parents in the same boat, but, you know, to them, they valued other things, right? So they would finish work at five and then go home and drink beer with their friends, watch hockey games, and their kids would play with us in the backyard. And they're still doing that, right? Um, whereas for my dad, you know, he was never, like at a certain point, he just stopped hanging out with some of his friends and just started working more and making more money um, and really wanted to you know, do something more in terms of being able to provide, right? And so that was the motivation. And it's one of those things where if you want to be an entrepreneur and you're, you want to be successful, you need to have that motivation. You need to have something, right? Because um, if you don't have something that drives you in that way, it's very hard because it's long hours, like if you're if you're not doing the work, you're trying to find work, you're trying to build your business, do your marketing, um, like there's always something to do. So you're working around the clock. Um, so it, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of long hours. And at the end of the day, it's on you. If you are, if it's your business, no one else will care about it as, as much as you would, right? Um, so if you want to slack, well, that's going to impact your business, right? If you don't want to do the work anymore, it impacts your business. So the buck stops with you, that's it. Right. So if you're not willing to put the work in, um, then your business can't really succeed. But through that, you need to have motivation. Right. That's that's a really hard part. Right. Um, it's not to say that entrepreneurs are always 100 percent motivated. You're going to have times where you don't feel that anymore. Right. You're in times you're burnt out. You're going to have times where um, you're really struggling. Right. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with things like mental health. Maybe they feel isolated. They feel alone. Um, but you have to find a way forward. Right. Um, and so my dad had to do that by himself because he didn't really have any people in his network who, um, you know, were really supporting him in that sense. They weren't entrepreneurs. They didn't know what it was like. Um, so you have to kind of find a way to do it yourself and stay motivated and really just push through. Right. And so I, I, I saw him go through that. Right. And, you know, I learned a lot from watching him in terms of how you build a business and keep it going. And, um, you know, it was definitely, uh, definitely played a huge role in how I would um, do things in my own life. Wow, that is a really impactful story. And I'm wondering how how you can tie in education with this, because um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they kind of roll their eyes at education and going to school, but you have a bachelor's degree, you've got a mortgage broker's license, you've got your CPA, you've got a law degree, you've really gone to school and educated yourself and put yourself in a really good position to understand all the aspects of running a business. So can we start with your bachelor's degree? What pulled you into university and what were the courses you took? And would you recommend any of those courses to uh, an entrepreneur, not the whole program, perhaps, but a few courses that you really found valuable. So, yeah, um, accounting. So, when I was in high school, um, I went to go into programming. That was my that was that, that's what I thought my path was going to be. I loved to program. Um, I taught myself a couple of programming programming languages. Um, made some money programming on the side, and a lot of programmers they'll tell you that they're self-taught right at a certain point you learn and they go to university to polish your skills um but then we had a family friend and he was a programmer he was a video game designer um at a well-known company and he told me what the day-to-day -day was like as a programmer and i was like you know what i maybe i don't want to do that it didn't sound like something i'd be interested in um and the other part is you know um the industry changes all the time Right back then, if you knew a couple programming languages, you're really good at it. You can find yourself really good, uh, really good job. But nowadays, you need to know many languages, and you have to constantly educate yourself, updating yourself um, throughout your entire career. Right. Um, and I was like, you know what, if I'm, you know, 
someone who has a family um, and I have to constantly learn and step to date just to be able to keep my current job and stay relevant in this industry. It's really fast paced. Um, and I don't even like the work environment as much. It doesn't really appeal to me from what I've seen. Um, then why am I going to go into it if I know it's how, how it's going to end up, right? So I talked to my career counselor in uh, high school and they said, well, you're good at math. Why don't you try accounting? You know, well, accounting has nothing to do with math, right? As I would later learn, but I figured, I looked into it and I was like, huh, interesting. You know, accounting, you kind of, you're the person who understands how the money flows when it comes to business, right? I was like, that sounds pretty neat. I'll, uh, I'll start with accounting and we'll see where that ends up, right? So I went into accounting and um, most people enter accounting thinking um, it's a practical skill, right? If you learn how to do accounting, you can get a job somewhere it's more flexible um in terms of the kinds of work you can get you can work for big companies smaller companies you can do bookkeeping have a little bookkeeping like it, it presents opportunities and i think that um you know with my parents generation um you know accounting was um definitely a high paying stable job um i mean it still is but uh, back then especially right um you know uh some people had um accounting designations back in the day compared to now um but uh you know a lot of people wanted accounting because they wanted to have a well-paying stable career um and that's their mentality went when they went to school to learn accounting was i'm just going to pick up the skills to get a stable job right um, but for me i want to actually learn about it right i want to learn and and you know kind of look beyond just the day-to-day -day, how do i do this um and really learn what it was about and so i was very interested in economics um you know like the theory behind accounting because I, I i always believed like you know if you want to learn about the business or even about society you just follow where the money goes right and stuff that, that i found really cool right um and so and then you learn the practical stuff about accounting, right? Like how the numbers work, um, how you account for certain things, you know, income statements, balance sheets. Because um, a lot of entrepreneurs will tell you that the part, some, sometimes, you know, the part they don't like is the financial statements. Reading them, understanding them, the bank's asking for it, the CRA is asking for stuff. It's, you know, it, it's an important part of running a business is understanding the numbers, right? Um, so for me, I figured accounting would uh, open up a lot of doors because it would be really good background to have. Um, because when you run a business, you have to know your numbers. You have to know the cost of producing certain things, how much money you're making, cash flow. Um, can you pay your bills? You have money to grow, right? Should I buy this? Should I lease this? Um, what are the next steps? Um, it's, it's really helpful to have that knowledge, right? Um, so for me, it was, um, you know, I got to acquire those, uh, those skills. Um, and it's definitely been very helpful, right? Because the ultimate goal was always to um, become a lawyer um, and or have my own business, right? Um, that was kind of always the long-term goal. And I figured accounting would be a really great background to have, right? To be able to do that. Uh, but that being said, you don't need to have a degree, um, you know, to have your own business. Um, if you're willing to work hard um, and pick up the skills, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs don't even have a degree, right? Um, but, um, you know, having one is not necessarily, you know, going to um, negatively impact you, um, but it provides you with a different insight, um, definitely make things easier in some way, um, and it's a good fallback option. Right. So let's say, you know, I know some people that they've run their own business for a while um, and sometimes they hit a point where they just don't feel it anymore. They want to go back in industry, right? And now they've got the experience running a business, they're more entrepreneurial. Um, maybe they want something more stable where they can spend more time with their family because things change, right? Um, and now they have an option where they can go and take on a job somewhere, right? So it uh, doesn't really 
or, you know, anyway. Um, but it was definitely very helpful because you need a degree to get to law school. Um, and I knew I always wanted to get involved in business. Um, so that's the path that I took. Could you tell us a little bit more about accounting and what you, what you see when you see a business or, um, what, information or what terms somebody should look up if they're running a business and they know nothing about accounting what are some basics uh, that they should be looking for to have an understanding of like cash flow projections what do these terms mean yeah no, and that's really important that's a really good question right because not everybody uh, if they're going to start a business now they don't have to spend a year or two in university trying to learn this stuff right and there's lots of resources online especially for entrepreneurs um, just giving you a crash course in accounting right that are very helpful programs um, so you want to understand for example what goes into an income statement, right? So your revenues and expenses, um, the basics of how that works, right? Because most people think of that when they think of income statements, revenues, expenses, profitability, think of an accounting we call cash basis accounting, right? So, um, you know, if I spend money today, it's going to be an expense and it's going to come out of my expenses of the year. It's going to be shown in the income statement. Um, there's also accrual-based accounting, right, where um, there's certain revenues and expenses where you might have received the cash, but instead of recognizing it all in one year, it actually makes more sense to smooth it out over a certain amount of years. So, for example, um, if you pay me for a contract to do work for you over two years and you pay me up front, um, well, it makes more sense to spread that revenue over the two years as opposed to recognizing it all, all at once, right? So, accrual based accounting is a bit different and people have difficulty wrapping their head around that, right? Or for example, if you pay for insurance, let's say you pay for insurance, it's June, um, end of June, um, and you're paying for one year's worth of insurance. Well, it doesn't make sense necessarily under the accrual basis to recognize all of that expense in the first year because you're really paying for half of it you're using half of that insurance in the first year, the other half in the second year. So accrual basis, you kind of, you know, match it to, you know, time period, right? So that's the kind of stuff where it helps to, you know, look into it, understand the terminology, um, understand a balance sheet, which lists your assets and liabilities. Um, so, you know, ex- so then you can calculate your ratios because when you go to get loans from the bank, they're going to ask for ratios like debt service, right? Um, the current ratio, they want to see that your business is liquid, that you have enough money um, to cover your debts um, and to cover debt payments, uh, that you're not too reliant on debt either. They'll have certain ratios, right? So if you if you have a business, you want to get financing, you want to expand, um, it really helps to understand what goes into a financial statement um and what different ratios mean how you calculate them so when your banker asks you about certain things you can actually talk to your accountant come up with an answer and understand what's involved um and run your business accordingly right maybe the bank will say well you have too much debt you can't really cover your debt service um we're going to want to see these following changes right then it's not um real foreign to you, you'll understand what to do because you need that money to expand and grow your business, right? So that's the stuff that's very important because there's a lot of people out there I see who don't even know how to read a financial statement, but that's crucial to their business, right? Um, but at the same time, understand um, you're too busy running the business to also learn this stuff. You rely on professionals to advise you. Um, but I think as the owner it helps if you want to be a bit more involved in that front um, to really know the nuts and bolts of your business because like you need enough rooms for improvement, right? If you know your financials, why am I spending so much money on this? You know, how much money does my competition spend on these expenses compared to the industry, right? They know where you stand. If you have a good banker, business advisor who also knows your industry, they can give you some tips. You know, um, have you tried doing this to improve your operations, to become more efficient? Well, then now you can have the conversation. Now you can find ways to improve your business, right? Um, so that's why I think it's important to, to know that, right? To right. figure that out. 
Camden had talked to us about uh, sole proprietorships, um, business incorporations. Can you tell us uh, some of the the accounting benefits of incorporating your business? What what are some of the benefits from your perspective, being a business lawyer and being able to help businesses? What are some of the benefits to you of incorporating uh, t- through taxes and otherwise? Yeah, so if you're um, a sole proprietor um, or partner, um, because if you have a general partnership, um, basically it's like, you know, a sole proprietorship except two more people, right? So if you and your neighbor decide to, you know, mow someone's lawn for five bucks, congratulations, you have a general partnership now. It's not registered, but that's what the business structure effectively is, um, which is like a sole proprietorship, right? So with the proprietorship, what you're doing is um, you're doing business you know, as an individual, um, you can be, you can doing business under a certain name, but um, like I could have, I could mow someone's lawn and be Chanel's lawn care, right? Sole proprietorship, not registered. I can, I can still start it up, right? Um, and then all your revenue, less your expenses, um, your net income um, is your personal income. So you can use it to buy things in your own name. You pay taxes based on your tax brackets. Um, you pay CBP. So you pay your um, employee and employer per- portion as opposed to when you work with someone else. The employer pays the employer per- portion and you pay your own off of your, um, you know, your paycheck. But when you're a sole proprietor, you're paying for both. Um, and then EI, if you want to opt into EI, you can still do so. Um, that's up to your accountant to advise you if to whether it's worth it or not based on your future plans. Um, um, and yeah, and, it's, and then you can, um, you know, get your RSP contribution room, right? Um, so things like that, um, that's the benefits. But let's say um, you hit the point where you're making money more than enough to cover your own bills. So you pay yourself the lowest possible salary you can to cover your own expenses. And you want to keep the rest in your company, right? Well, in that sense, um, maybe it's better to incorporate, right? So incorporate, let's say that um, your business makes $100,000 that year and you pay yourself 50 and you want to keep 50,000 into the business um, and let it grow. Well, it grows. um, So the corporate tax rate's a bit lower, right? Um, And then the money can sit there uh, tax deferred is what they call it because you haven't paid it to yourself as income yet. But when you do withdraw it in the future, whether it's through a dividend or a salary, um, you will be paying taxes on it, right? So that way, um, the money can grow inside your company. You can invest in your company, you can invest in other things, and then you only pay taxes once you've officially drawn upon it, right? So for some people, um, maybe that makes more sense. Why would I pay a full tax of drawing the money now if I don't need it? Um, I can leave it in the company, the company can use it. Um, and we can use it to grow, right? So, you know, maybe that's one of the tax planning reasons as to why someone would want a corporation, right? And those other, in the past, you could do things like income splitting between spouses and family members. And there's all kinds of stuff that you could do um, to lessen the tax tax impact legally. Um, Again, that's more of an accounting discussion, but, you know, with different governments, different laws, things change, right? Um, There's always the argument in terms of, well, is this, if we allow people to split their taxable income between family members, is that fair taxation? Um, That's more of a political question, right, as to what's really fair. Uh, But, um, 
you know, it's, and that changes, right? So maybe today you're not allowed to do certain things. In the future, things will change. You're allowed to split income and stuff like that. Um, you know, an accountant will advise you in terms of what you can do to minimize your tax liability. Um, and then you can use that money to invest in your business, pay your staff more, whatever, right? Uh, but the rationale is, you know, they want to have a tax system that um, allows for businesses to flourish. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, you don't want to have the public opinion that you're also favoring people who own businesses, right, and give them preferential tax treatment because um, that's also not uh, healthy for society, right? So it's about finding that balance. But that's a political thing, right? But the accountant will tell you what you can and cannot do. Right. right. And I think that that dovetails nicely into a question I have. I think the instinct for so many small business owners and entrepreneurs is to try and save money, mm-hmm. save money wherever they can. But I think one area I'd like to ask about is the difference between a bookkeeper and an accountant. Because as I said, the instinct is to save money, but perhaps the investment in having an accountant might pay off long term. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that. Yeah. So, um, so most people will hire a bookkeeper to maintain their books. That's usually the first function to get outsourced in the business. Um, when you have a business, you're busy, you're getting out there, you're making money. And at the end of the week, you see a bunch of receipts and you have a bunch of uh, money in the bank and trying to account. Like, it's the first function people outsource, right? Like, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to focus on business, which is a smart thing to do, right? Um, you want to focus on your business, do what you're best at. And so they f- want to find someone to take over the books, right? And so they want to reach out to a bookkeeper, right? And a bookkeeper, uh, I mean, just like any profession, you have people who are very good at it. They really stand out. You have people who, you know, maybe aren't so good at it. Um, they can get the job done, whatever. Um, but they'll maintain your books, right? Keep everything in compliance. Um, but the thing is that, um, you know, your bookkeeper may not be a designated professional accountant, right? Because professional accountants can do things like provide um, opinions on financial statements, right? They can do audits. Um, they can advise you with things like internal controls, right? So internal controls prevent fraud in your corporate, in your company. Um, like for example, um, checks, right? Let's say I have a business where I issue a lot of checks um, and I just keep the checks in a shelf in my office. Anybody can access it. I can have my staff sign off on it. Well, what's stopping them from just signing checks, making them payable to themselves and cashing in at the bank, right? Um, there's no control over it. There's no um, even IT functions, right? What's the, you know, what are the functions there? To, what are the, the fail saves to protect yourselves, right? Um, so these are things that um, a CPA, especially one as an auditor, can advise you on. They can do control test and they can advise you in terms of um, how to keep these functions secure, um, have have the appropriate control. So they can take things a step to that step and give you that advice, right? Um, And they can prepare your personal taxes, do your um, company's taxes. They can you know, um, help you with um, tax compliance. If the CRA is auditing you or have some questions on your financials, they can answer them, right? So you know, for me, myself, um, I have a CPA, right, um, who helps me with that kind of thing. Even though I am a CPA myself, um, you know, you're a fool if you're your own client, right? So, you know, I don't want to deal with my own books. I have an accountant who deals with it for me, but I know um, the accounting, right? So I can answer questions. I can get stuff done. Um, I don't need much handholding, um, but I like having an accountant I can call upon to answer some of these hard questions because I want to grow my business and I want to have the professional advice. Um, so I find that by hiring someone to CPA, I can, you know, have the best of all worlds. Um, and sure, the cost may be a bit more than having someone who's a bookkeeper and they provide that limited scope of service. Um, but for me, it's an investment that's well worth it, right? Because CPAs are also a good source of referrals. Um, they're people you can do business 
business with, they can, the people can also um, just chat with about running your practice, right? Because I'll provide a professional service, um, you know, the designated professionals as well. So you share a lot of commonalities in terms of how you run your business. Um, so, you know, for me, that that's why I reached out to uh, um, Corbin, right? Corbin Bailey CPA. Um, I've known him for a little while now. Um, I said, hey, you want to take on law firm books? He said, sure. Um, and yeah, it's been great ever since. But uh, I, I like working with, um, you know, usually solo or smaller CPA firms because um, I'm also I also have a smaller law firm. Um, I could deal with them directly, um, and it's more cost effective, right? Because I'm also a small business. Um, but yeah, you know, I always you, you want to find the right fit for your business, right? Um, and if it's you know, like I have some friends who are lawyers, and they just they have a bookkeeper, and they just do the books. They don't uh, advise them anything above that, and that's what they want. But for me, I want to take my business to the next level. Um, I want to be able to get that advice, you know, all around. Right. right. So that's what they can provide me because they are a designated professional. Right. And I think another aspect is a lot of people when they imagine doing their taxes is a giant package of paper that they need to drop off at their bookkeeper or CPA. And I'm wondering how technology kind of helps with that. How does it reduce the amount of paper and uh, streamline the communication? Is that an option that people can consider? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of options nowadays for reducing the paperwork, right? So, um, for example, for myself, I can scan in receipts through uh, the apps, uh, the QuickBook app. Um, I can scan receipts that way. I don't need to, you know, surprise my accountant with a bunch of receipts at your end. Cause that's what, that's how things used to be done. You would go to your accountant's office at your end with a bunch of receipts and then they would have to slog through it and categorize everything. Um, but nowadays you can just scan it all up and then the software will, um, pick out numbers from your receipts, um, put them into certain categories. So for example, um, if I go to the gas station and I fill up gas, right? Um, and I scan it then uh, the program can pick out things like how much you spent, the taxes, GST, PST, um, and it will know, okay, well, you went to this place, obviously the gas station, and so it's going to automatically record it as fuel expense, right? So, you know, all of that is automated pretty much, right? And the accountant would go in and just review it and then, excuse me, just accept it, right? So it really streamlines a lot of that, um, which is great because then um, your counting costs are reduced because you have a more efficient way of handling, um, you know, the inputs. Um, and it's just easier, right? And then your accountant, because uh, nowadays, um, you know, with a more modern practice, um, a lot of accountants trying to shift to a more cloud-based system. So, you know, they'll see things in real time. It's all updated. Um, and the software, the programs you use nowadays are so intelligent. Um, so they can figure out entries, accounting entries, you know, they'll put into the best guess um, and it's bang on a lot of the time. So that way your accountant can really sift through the bookkeeping pretty easily, um, especially over time as you get to your business. They can automate a lot of those inputs um, and then spend their time looking at reconciliations, looking through your expenses, revenues and giving you advice, right? Preparing statements. Um, so you get a lot more bang for your buck when you have a more efficient setup like that, right? Um, and when you do a lot of real estate law, like I do. Um, you know, a lot of the work that we do revolves around lots of money going in, money going out, um, a lot of disbursements. Um, it really helps to have a streamlined, efficient system, right? Because if you're doing things in a very old school way, um, it becomes very tedious. And that's when you make more mistakes as well, right? Um, because you have all kinds of paperwork and trying to get it all compiled. It's more prone to human error. Whereas if you have the te computer technology in place, um, it removes that potential for human error, which is great because you don't want to be, you know, audited. Now you're taking up receipts from years ago to find out where this $18 went, right? So, you know, yeah.
That is fantastic to kind of develop a, a further understanding of the benefits of accounting. And you talked about real estate. Why did you go get your mortgage license, your broker's license? Yeah. Uh, what were some of the benefits that you saw of doing that? So back in that time, so when I got my accounting degree and I started working in industry, um, I wanted to get a designation because I wanted to, you know, further, um, you know, my, my development as a professional. Um, and so my options were either to get my MBA or to get my CPA uh, or potentially both. But I figured um, an MBA is great and all, but it didn't line up with where I wanted to be. Um, if I was working for a larger company and they wanted to promote me to like VP or something or um, and they pay for your MBA, that's that's the most common route, I think, is people who are already in the industry um, and they want to take things above, they their employer might encourage them to do their MBA, right? Um, but for me, that wasn't my plan, right? So, um, but, uh, so what I figured was the CPA actually made a lot more sense. It's a professional designation, um, which means they have a regulatory body that you're expected to be in compliance with, which in my opinion holds that weight. Um, it's more cost effective. You can work while doing it. Um, and I was also actually tutoring for the program as well. So I had familiarity with it. Um, so for me, it made sense to, um, to uh to pursue um accounting designation and then at the same time i was thinking about well where do i want to go with this right i don't want to become a lawyer i don't want to do business law but i also liked real estate because i was getting because i did some consulting projects on the side um and so i would get a lot of um work that was a lot of real estate valuations and things like that, right? Uh, mostly used by companies to do their own decision making. So I wasn't doing it publicly because you need to be uh, licensed for that. Um, but I had people I knew who that ran their own private businesses. They wanted to acquire businesses. They wanted to acquire property. And they wanted um, an opinion in terms of how much we really pay for this, right? And so I took on projects um, where I would crunch the numbers, do the math, and provide all kinds of analysis in terms of what I think a fair valuation is, right? Um, and so that led to my interest in real estate. And one of my mentors, um, uh, Sandeep, Sam, he is a mortgage broker. And so I met him in university um, and he does a lot of, and he was, his whole, most of his career is pretty much in real estate, right? And he's an awesome guy. He really gave me a lot of good advice and guidance over the years. I'm really appreciative um, of that to still stay in touch with him as well. Um, and he's in commercial real estate. And one of the options is also just to work with him right learn how the commercial real estate industry works um i get that get that view um because i i found it really interesting and fascinating right um and so i said you know what um why not get my license right um that way if i wanted to work with him in the mortgage business or work in the legal side on mortgages one day i can have that perspective that knowledge um uh, and if not then have a really good um, background um in terms of knowing what you what you need if to practice as a mortgage broker realtor in BC, right? Because um, if you actually go through the course material, that's there's quite a lot in there, right? And it's quite a lot of really good stuff. Um, it's really thorough, right? Um, so for me, I learned that stuff, um, and it was great to well in the exams. Uh, but I didn't want to become a mortgage broker. Um, I wasn't interested in, in the sales side of things yet. I knew I wanted to go to law school, um, but I knew I wanted to also do real estate. So for me, that gave me a good um, insight in terms of um, the industry, how it works, um, and then have that um, knowledge now when I talk to realtors, mortgage brokers, like how the licensing process works, what they're expected to know as well, what their role is in the transaction, what they can advise on, um, which is great because when I can understand what they do better, it makes it easier for me to do things like provide referrals, right? To know their role of the process, right? Um, because if I know what they are, 
what they do, um, what their role is, then I can give them a chance to also um, show that to their clients, right? Because they'll always take the chance to show their customer service to their clients because they're in the sales industry, right? So um, if I have a client and ask me, maybe they have a file with me for a real estate transaction um, and then something comes up, and uh, but I know this is something that the broker can definitely handle. Um, that's not usually something a lawyer does. Um, well, it's also a chance for the broker to then show off their knowledge and expertise and their level to customer service, right? Um, so I might call the broker and say, hey, look, um, this came up on a file. You know, I was thinking that I could do this, this, and this, but um, I want to know if it's something you want to do or not, right? Um, and usually like, oh, sure, yeah, I'll jump on it right away, right? And they tell the client, hey, look, this came up, we dealt with it right away. They look great, right? Um, and I know it's something they can do. Um, and that's something they can showcase, right? Because uh, that's how referral relationships work, right? You want to look out for each other. So that knowledge is really helpful, right? Um, I learned a lot about the mortgage industry, um, real estate, um, and it was really good to have that background. Um, and even then, when you're when you're a lawyer, um, you also do a lot of private deals. You have private mortgages, private real estate transactions, um, but you also have to know um, how far you can go right before you have to do things like get a license or advise your client hey look you're lending money to other people you need to have a licensed mortgage broker involved at this point right um or if you're you know helping someone with a private real estate transaction well these are the limits of what i can do right as a lawyer um at which point you need to have an actual realtor come in um because of certain real estate marketing limits right um so that's why i think it's invaluable if you're in real estate to at least um take those programs um and know how the industry works right i really appreciate that because growing up i obviously had no idea about the concepts of uh, investing starting a business entrepreneurship any of these as options uh, it just wasn't even on my radar and so it really feels like being able to work with you at alpine legal services i've had the opportunity to look behind the curtain and have an understanding of how other people look at money investing growth um, having a business corporation having money stay within it so that you can invest it and grow it like all of those things, I think for so many people, it's not even on their radar. And so I'm interested to know your thoughts on real estate, because we keep hearing uh, it's like so big, it's really busy, real estate is exploding right now. But what does that mean? Because to me, it's an indication that people are investing their money. But I would have never looked at it that way um, prior to working with you and kind of seeing how people make financial decisions in regards to mortgages. And um, I'm hoping that you can elaborate on that. And what do you see what does it mean that we have this kind of big real estate market right now? How does that imp impact people's personal finances and perhaps their business finances? Yeah, and this is um, the question that people ask quite a bit, right? They want to know what, what the future holds and people have different opinions, right? In terms of there's always someone who will, you know, go extreme one with the other, right? Everyone's got different opinions. And this is why I like the studying economics, um, because then you can understand how things like inflation and monetary policy work uh, and form like a bit of an informed opinion, which is great. Um, so, you know, a lot of people I talk to, because nobody expected the the real estate market to kind of boom during COVID because it was kind of, there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, are people going to lose their jobs? Are we going to see more foreclosures? Um, what's going to happen, right? And so lots of uncertainty there where real estate kind of slowed down because nobody really knew what was going to happen, right? 
Um, but then when we had more government funding coming in, we had the interest rates cut a bit that provided people with some liquidity to tide things over um, if they needed it, um, have a cheap access to capital because if people can borrow money um, cheaply, um, they're more likely to use that money, right, which can stimulate the economy, which can th- keep things going. So that's something like a pandemic doesn't slow things down um, and cause, you know, um, too many jobs to be lost and impact the economy negatively that way. So, excuse me. So that's what we saw. You know, interest rates went down. More people are trying to then use that to refinance. So if you have a lot of debt, well, like you pull the equity out of your home at a lower rate, um, consolidate that debt, package it up. Um, but then that also becomes a time where property relatively becomes cheaper, right? Because if I've got a home that I own right now and I've got a mortgage on and I'm paying a higher interest rate. Well, if now mortgage rates are lower, um, well, then I can take on a higher payment, which means I can afford more house. So I'm going to go out there and buy while I can. And if I can work from home with my job, well, might as well, why am I living here in this city? It's more expensive. I can move out to other cities that may be a bit out there. Um, but now I can still keep my job. And, you know, so a lot of the people are making these decisions. Um, and then, you know, acting on it, right? So then you see, you know, places like Chilliwack where a lot of people move out here and you have people who move out here and they might work in Vancouver and they just work online. Maybe they pop in the office once a week and they get more bang for their buck moving further out as opposed to being in places like in Vancouver or Surrey, right? Um, and so that's how property prices, and there's also speculation, there's investment, there's all kinds of reasons, right? Um, people go out there and buy property and then prices go up. Right. And then with that limited housing supply, then rents also go up. Right. Because if you can't find a place to buy, be going to be somewhere, maybe you'll rent and then try to find a place um, later on. So the rental market goes up. Right. So um, but, you know, what happens now? That's a big question. Right. So um, depending on who you ask, you a different opinion. But, um, you know, a lot of money was injected into the economy. Um, and usually when that happens, you have inflation. Right. And so inflation means that, um, well, if you inject more money into the economy, um, people spend, um, but then prices will go up. They'll keep up because there's more demand. Right. So it all comes down to demand and supply. And so the theory there is that uh, we'll have higher periods of inflation. Right. Um, so then people see things like prices going up. Right. And I think people definitely notice that, especially in the pandemic, where prices start going up for things, right? Um, except for wages, right? A lot of people are still getting paid the same, but prices keep going up, housing costs are going up, but they're still getting paid the same. So their actual, um, their real income is actually less because of inflation, right? Um, and so, and then what will happen? Um, well, to offset that, theoretically, interest rates could go up, right? Um, and if interest rates go up, well, then I got a problem because if you have debt that's tied to the prime rate, well, can you still afford that debt, right? So if you maxed out your mortgage with the variable rate um, to be able to afford a property, and let's say that rates go up, well, then now you maybe are not able to make those same payments. So then what happens? What happens in five years when your you know, mortgage comes up for renewal and interest rates are really high and now you're kind of well, I don't want to make those payments anymore. I want to downsize. Well, then maybe um, people start to sell, right? And look to downsize. Um, and that will impact prices. That'll impact, you know, a lot of things moving forward, right? Um, but, I mean, there's no way to crystal ball and see what re- what's really going to happen. Um, people have their different opinions because things like government policies will change, right? Um and how they, you know, what happens with the central bank's rate, right? It's going to go up, it's going to go down. What's, what's the policy going to be moving forward, right? I don't know. 
right? But that'll definitely impact things because that's what that's what's considered. We look at the central banking policy, consider the impact on things like jobs, interest rates, housing affordability. Um, these are all things you have to consider, right? Um, so for now, um, yeah, decisions are made to help with the pandemic and things like that. Um, but how that impact us moving forward? Because right now we see like really high property prices, high rents, um, cheaper debt, uh, more people taking on debt, buying things, inflation happening, right? Um, where do we stand after all that, right? That's the that's the big question. Right? I think that, that that this conversation is so important because when I think of inflation, I think of um, my law textbook for tax law said that that impacts people on fixed incomes the most. Yeah. And I think of who's on fixed incomes within the Fraser Valley, and I think of indigenous communities and people in poverty. And I get concerned when I don't see anyone standing up and voicing their concerns about the uh, spending bills and the the stimulus packages that are coming about, because nobody seems to be sounding the alarm and saying, hey, you know who this impacts the worst? People on minimum wage jobs people in poverty and indigenous communities. And I hear almost every political party saying they care deeply about indigenous communities and building that connection. And so the other part I want to connect this with is I've been listening to a person named Robert Breedlove, who is, uh, he was a stockbroker and kind of uh, big into finance in the US. Uh, then he got interested in Bitcoin. And um, I've, I've been very hesitant to get interested in Bitcoin because it seems like a fad. But one of the arguments he made relevant to Bitcoin was that um, counterfeiting money is illegal. But when the government do it, it's just legal counterfeiting. They're making something for nothing. There's no value behind the money they're printing. And so that's what causes the, the currency to devalue. And then that's what causes inflation is this this approach through central banking. And so his argument is through something like Bitcoin that wouldn't be uh, occur as much because there's a fixed amount and there's nobody else who can create more of the currency. So I'm just interested to know a little bit about your thoughts on inflation and how people should be navigating this. Because I think over the next five years, we are going to see inflation no matter what. The spending has already occurred. And so people are going to be impacted. And hopefully people listening can take a few steps um, towards trying to protect themselves against that. Because as I said, I'm worried about my indigenous community and how people are actually going to be impacted moving forward. And if you have any thoughts on how you would approach trying to protect yourself from inflation, like um, investing in property. Um, you've mentioned that as one of your hedges against inflation. And so I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, in periods of inflation, um, what they call your real return decreases. So for example, if I have an investment and it gives me 5% return, um, inflation is 3%, I'm really only earning 2%. Right, so in periods of inflation, um, your real return um, goes down. But at the same time, if you have um, cheaper debt, um, usually debt holders are the ones that um, benefit during periods of inflation because the real cost of that debt goes down. Right, so for example, in Zimbabwe, um, they have like a trillion dollar. I'm not sure how far they are in hyperinflation. But like a trillion dollar bill there, it goes nowhere, right? Because they've experienced so much inflation um, that um, you, you take like, um, you know, um, containers, buckets, um, wheelbarrows full of money just to buy necessities, right? Because that's how far the currency has been devalued. Now, imagine if um, at a certain point, I was in Zimbabwe, like a trillion dollars, and it was worth a lot at a certain point, right? And I used that to buy everything. And then I took out a loan to do that. And then hyperinflation comes about, well, my debt is a trillion dollars. And now 
a trillion dollars is not worth anything. So I can easily pay it back because it's not worth anything, right? Um, so that's kind of the logic behind um, how debt holders can win during inflation because now the real cost of debt is lower, right? So what some people are doing, which is what you're seeing, is they're taking out cheaper debt um, to invest. So that way, um, you know, their investments will grow with the rate of inflation plus whatever return. Um, and then when it comes time to pay out the debt, well, the cost of the debt is much lower than um, the inflation, right? So inflation is 3% and I borrow money at like, I don't know, 2% under a really good mortgage um, and invest it and earn like 8%. Well, I don't really care so much about the cost of the debt because it's so cheap. Right. And then as inflate, as interest rates, as inflation happens, and then the prices of the investments and the assets that I own go up, well, I can sell that and pay off the, the relatively cheap debt. Right. So that's what you're seeing a lot of, um, investment activity. And that's why you're seeing people get really speculative investments. Yeah. People investing in things like cryptocurrency, right. Where, um, you know, my own opinion, I don't really, feel too confident as an investor because what's backing it up um but i'm not an expert when it comes to investing right so maybe i'm the biggest fool i don't have any money in bitcoin right um you know but that's that's just how investing works right um i don't want to take necessary risk when that kind of sucks i don't understand it um but that's why you're seeing people speculate more because they have that cheap debt there. Um, they borrow the money, they put it wherever because they want to hedge against inflation. They want to take advantage of the, you know, increasing values in the market. Um, and that's, yeah, that's why you're seeing like NFTs, right? People investing in that. They're spending millions and hundreds of thousands of dollars on an asset um, where the actual value is not really known yet. Right. Um, so you're seeing a lot of speculation because um, people are trying to capitalize on that gain with the cheaper cheaper debt right and the people who are really impact are those people who are on um, a fixed income limited income or um you know they, ha they have jobs where they don't have much room to negotiate a higher wage or a higher salary um their their income is not tied to inflation because uh, for example certain government jobs maybe you will get a certain guaranteed inflationary increase every year um or some union jobs will have that in place um but if you're someone working a retail job or you have a fixed income um or any kind of work like that um you're not going to get inflationary increase so costs of costs are going up but um your real income is going down because, you know, a couple thousand dollars today uh, or a couple thousand dollars like a few months ago is not worth the same today. You can buy less with it. Right. Um, and that's when it becomes more of a, a political decision. Then, you know, should we increase things like the minimum wage? Should it be indexed to inflation? Um, you know, should employers be doing more to, um, you know, to pay more? Right. And that's why you're seeing people walk out on jobs nowadays. Right. I'm sure you've seen, um, you know, restaurants and, you know, um, certain stores that employees just walk out because at a certain point, um, you know, it's not worth it anymore for them, right? Because the, the real wage is so low, why would even bother going to work then, right? I might as well just wait and just see what else comes up because at this point, um, if I'm showing up and what I'm earning is really not going to have to pay the bills, what's the point, right? Like you see, like I would see forum posts where people in the US would get a stimulus check and it was like 600 bucks. And they lost their job. They have nothing, right? They're really struggling to get by. They don't have a plan. They don't know what to do. And they get a check for 600 bucks. Well, I can't do anything with this. I might as well blow it on the new gaming console because what else am I going to do, right, at this point? So, um, you know, people get to the point of, you know, hopelessness and helplessness, right? Um, but what can be done about that? It's a political decision, right? Um, so, 
you know, for me, I think that um, it would be good to at least tie things like minimum wage to inflation. Um, so that way, if you're someone who's earning the minimum wage today, um, you should be able to afford the same standard of living in 10 years, right? Um, and it's not like, you know, oh, the minimum wage has gone up. Now people are going to go out there and live a life of luxury. I mean, it's minimum wage is tough enough as is, right? So tying that to inflation, I don't really see the downside of that because it hasn't gone up in a long time. Right. And now I know it's it's going up a bit, et cetera. And what the value is compared to inflation, um, you know, I'm not sure like where it should be, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I remember when I was working minimum wage, it was $8 an hour, right? Um, and sure, back then we had the $6 training wage, $8 an hour. Um, but what I could buy with it was different from making $8 and $6 an hour now. Um, you know, like obviously minimum wage is higher than that now, but um, with inflation, it's worth less, right? Whereas if I was, you know, making $8, $10 an hour in the 1950s, very different story, right? Um, but that's just the impact of inflation over time, right? So, um, you know, there should be some kind of measure to at least ensure a certain you know quality of life at the bare minimum with inflation otherwise what do you do right costs are going up around you um and you can't afford to keep up with it well why aren't wages going up to also um reflect the, the inflation right um but again it's a political thing right society votes for who they think has the right ideas and they put that into place hopefully um but um you know it's the uh it's the political process, right? So if there's, uh, and I think nowadays people are voicing it more, right? We have um, all kinds of ways to voice your opinions online, uh, spread the word, um, get support and go out there and vote, right? And that's what it ultimately comes down to. Absolutely. And I think right. that that's really helpful for people because I don't know if most people think about inflation or think about the long-term impacts. I see a lot of people complaining that they don't want to go to work or they don't want to get paid that amount, but I don't know if they're connecting that to the spending that the federal government has made and how that plays a role in our communities right here in Chilliwack or the Fraser Valley. So I think that that discussion was really valuable. Can you tell us about what motivated you to go to law school and what you took away from that experience? Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing with law school is that you have, um, and it's a good thing, is that you have, you have a lot of different perspectives. So that's really cool, I find, right? Because when you go into, um, like, for example, if I go and uh, go to school for accounting, you're going to have a lot of people with very similar pr perspectives, right? Because um, they're there to learn a really specific trade. Um, and they might have a very limited mindset because they're mostly there to pick up a skill, right? Uh, but with law, um, people go into law for very different reasons because it's such a... It's such a broad profession, right? You can be a criminal lawyer. You can be a real estate lawyer. You can do really high-end, complex, international, you know, intellectual property law, right? There's, um, you can really do different things. So you get a lot of people with different perspectives, et cetera. Sometimes people want to, you know, um, really champion a certain cause, right? Maybe they want to, maybe they're, have, they have lawyers in the family who go on to become judges or, you know, academic researchers, and that's what they want to do, right? So you get all kinds of perspectives, which is what we need in the profession, right? You always want that kind of diverse perspective. Otherwise, um, you're having people in positions of power, positions of authority who have the legal background, they're being relied upon, and it's good to know that there's a variety there instead of just relying on one perspective, right? So, um, but for me, um, 
I knew I wanted to go into business. I wanted to work with business clients. I wanted to have my own business. I wanted to work in real estate. Um, you know, I'm not going to, you know, pretend that I went into law school to try to, you know, champion a certain cause or anything like that, which is it's noble to do. Um, but, you know, my skills better align with being a business person. And then when I do achieve that success in business, I can then use that to contribute to society in my own different way. Right. Um, so that was my rationale was I'll do what I'm naturally inclined at uh, and then leverage those skills. Um, so for me, when I looked at law, um, I wanted to go into um, a profession that I would find challenging, that I would find stimulating. Um, you know, that would open up more doors for me and um, that would allow me to leverage a certain set of skills to. Um, either have my own business, um, you know, and and just have that um, that opportunity, right? Um, so law school checked off all the boxes, right? Talking to lawyers, seeing what they do day to day, um, I, I found it more interesting, right? Um, and you know, it's. Um, yeah, it's you can do a lot with your law degree. It opens up a lot of doors for sure, um, and you get um, you get trained to to think about things in a very different way, right? Because you have the legal way of looking at it, um, and you know you people, the general public who may not have that legal training, you know, and you see it all the time, right? You know you can't do this is against my charter rights and like they don't understand how that stuff really works um but it impacts us day to day we're all governed by laws right um it impacts how it, it, it's it, it's it's what really holds society together right otherwise um you know if there were no laws in place what happens right or what happens if people um lose faith in the law they lose trust in the law they lose trust in the legal system um society looks very different right so let's we lived in a society where um you know there's no real stability in place and the laws are more of a suggestion there's no rule there's no way to really enforce it right um let's say you can slip your you know you get pulled over or something you can just slip your police officer 20 bucks and let you off the hook and you can, there's no real justice there's no real enforcement what would society look like at that point right and laws become something where no one really respects the law no one really obeys the law well society is going to go downhill real quick, right? Because there's no certainty, right? Whereas if you look at, um, you know, how we live today, um, like sure, it's not perfect, but, you know, without thinking about it, we're participating in the system, this legal system. And, you know, we're abiding by certain rules. It's unspoken. It's, um, you don't even think about it, but you comply with it every day. You know, when you wake up in the morning and you hop into your car and you drive within the lanes, you stop at the stoplight, um, you stay within the speed limit, stuff like that, you're obeying all those laws, right? Um, and, you know, you're maybe you don't want to wake up that morning and think about just attacking random people um because it's not the right thing to do it's illegal right um i mean some people might do it anyways but uh you know we comply with certain laws just by living in the society right uh and it really holds things together and so you know as much as people make lawyer jokes imagine a, a place where there is no rule of law right would you want to live in a society like that uh, we have so many advantages in society where we do have that stability the political stability that um social stability because of laws right so um to understand that and to be part of that um that's really cool right um and i really like that um and then and, and it's not 
it's not easy. It's not simple. And that's why lawyers have jobs, right? Because people want to make sure what they're doing is in accordance with the law, right? So if someone, let's say, is going through a separation or divorce, well, there's a whole bunch of rules in place to ensure things like fairness, transparency, um, consistency. Um, and it's an extremely difficult system to navigate. It's really intimidating. And that's why you have lawyers who deal with that specifically, right? Because um, otherwise, a person trying to go through that themselves, it's really difficult. Um, um, they try to be more accessible, but um, you don't want to also sacrifice things like fairness and, you know, justice and, you know, you know, for the sake of accessibility either, right? Because you want to make sure there's a fair, just outcome for people, right? So um, there's procedures, there's rules in place. Um, and to be a lawyer, to understand that, to be able to offer that to people, that's pretty neat, right? It's a really privileged position in society. Um, it's it's one of those things where when you do become a lawyer, um, you have to understand and respect um, you know, the profession, your role in society. Um, you know, you can't just abuse that, uh, that privilege. Um, but it's... Uh, it's, it's really nice to have that um, and to be able to offer that, right? Because I have clients who, um, you know, they ask for advice. They want to know what their legal rights are. I can advise them, all right? And maybe their perspective will change. Oh, I didn't know that things were like this. Okay, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this now, right? They rely on your advice. And, and sure enough, like, obviously, they pay you for that advice. Uh, but the value that, the value they gain from getting professional legal advice, it's huge, right? And as a lawyer, you know, the buck stops with you, right? You can't just you know, say, oh, I, oh man, I, I don't know what I'm doing here, right? It, it's, you're the lawyer, right? It's your job. You figure things out, you get an answer, you advise your clients professionally, um, you know, with integrity, um, and it goes a long way and you see the impact of that, right? And um, that's what I think when I think of my decision to go to law school, um, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to expand my career options. I wanted to um, be the person where I can spend my time figuring out solutions to problems to help people, right? That's what you're doing. No matter what area of law you're in, um, you're a problem solver. That's what you do all day. Whether it's family, criminal, wills and estates, real estate business, you're taking a legal problem and you're finding a solution uh, to it for your client, right? Um, and when you think about it that way, it's it's really, it, it changes perspective on it, right? Because um, people coming to you, they're making that step to actually come to you as a lawyer, right? For some people, it takes a lot to eventually get to the point where, okay, I need a lawyer, right? And they make that phone call, they email you or whatever it is, they get in touch with you, um, and hopefully something can actually help them with. Um, but, uh, you know, they're looking for that advice and that help, right? And they're basically taking, you know, that problem that they're having and putting on your shoulders, right? Um, with the trust that you'll get it done, right? And for some people, that's uh, that responsibility can, you know, trigger that kind of anxiety, like, oh, this is a big deal, right? Um, especially in areas like, for example, criminal law, right? Where, um, you know, you have a client, have a case, maybe it's not a popular case, right? Maybe they did something, they're accused of something that's really terrible, um, especially in a community where people might know them, um, and now they need a criminal lawyer to help them. And the thing is, is that, uh, you know, they have rights, they have their side of the story, right? And as you know, when you study criminal law, um, you know, accusations, sometimes when you actually look at the facts, well, you can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And when you actually look at both sides of the story, um, it paints a very different picture, right? But if no one is there to understand and legally explain and argue that side and argue the law, um, they end up with people who may be ostracized by the public, or maybe they go to jail over something that they really did not either do or they weren't guilty of um and it's not in accordance with our justice system right it's not perfect i'm not saying it's perfect at all um no system's ever going to be perfect um but um 
you know, as a lawyer who practices, if you practice in that area, that's a huge responsibility, right? Um, because you're the person who is going to try to guarantee this person justice in this current system, right? To whatever they're entitled to, right? Um, and that can mean a huge, that can, that can really change someone's life, right? Uh, could be the difference between, let's say someone is guilty of an offense based on their factors, maybe it's more just for them to serve a two-year sentence as opposed to a five, 10-year sentence, right? Depending on what's going on. Um, but that comes down to you as a criminal lawyer and how well you advocate, how well you know the, the justice system, your case law. Um, and that's a huge responsibility because that can change this person's life, right? So that's a really huge burden to shoulder, but that's the expectation as a professional in that area is that you're able to, to shoulder that for your clients, right? And I did, when I was uh, volunteering at UBC as part of LSLAP, I did exclusively criminal law, right? Um, and it helped some people out with some really messy matters. Um, and it was really cool, but it wasn't an area that I think I could do every day. Um, it was not aligned with my skill set, but I was able to help people the best that I could. Um, but it gave a lot of respect for the different areas of law, right? And how people can help people, right? Um, and it's, uh, it's really neat. It's definitely a privilege to be a lawyer, for sure. Right. And can you tie this in with starting Alpine Legal Services? Because that started in October 2019. We're in September 2021. So almost two years. Uh, what was the process to get this business started? Did you have to write a business plan? Did you have to uh, go to banks to get financing? How did you get the business started? And perhaps we can tie this in with the Alpine Legal Services pen as well. Right. Yeah. So um, I I always liked um, running a business um, and being the ones ultimately responsible for the business, right? So for me, when I'm an employee working for someone else, I'm like, sure, you want to work hard, you want to you know do well because that's what you're getting paid to do, but the motivation is different. The feeling is different, right? Um, maybe you're not a fan of the team that you're stuck with, right? You feel like you can do more if you didn't have them, um, you know, with politics and the different skills. Maybe you don't drive well with your team. Maybe you don't like your boss who you work for. Um, you think you can do a better job or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and you want to have your own business and you think you could really pull it off, right? So for me, um, I've always wanted to have my own business, do my own thing, um, have employees, have staff, grow something and really take that risk. I like it, right? Everything about it, um, that jives my personality, right? And if things go well, great. If things don't go well, um, well, what can I do better? And how can I improve and take the next step? I like that kind of stuff. For some people, they don't like that risk, right? But for me, it's I love it, right? To me, that that's that's what I want, right? Um, so it was really no, it was really no brainer, um, you know, to have my own practice. Um, and in terms of you know the costs and things like that, how you go about it, it's a service business. It's what it is, right? You're offering a service, um, and you're getting paid for that service. So you have to think about things like, well, what services will I be providing? How do I price those services? Um, how do I differentiate my services from my competition? Um, how do I get the word out there? What resources do I need to put into place to make this business happen? Um, and then what are the steps I take to go from where I am now to putting all of this into place, right? And it's not easy, no matter which business you have to go from point A to point B, you know, to point Z. Um, there's a lot involved, right? And maybe you're an expert in your area of what you do for a living, but maybe you're not really that good at things like marketing or branding or thinking about business strategy or thinking about financing. Um, and that's okay. Right. Um, 
there's people out there who can help you, right? You have a team, right? You have an accountant, you have your lawyer, you have your banker, right? You have people out there, other entrepreneurs, you have a network, right? Um, create those connections. And then, uh, you know, there's no, you're not expected to know everything or to be able to do everything, um, you know, and don't feel like you have to be in that position before you can start a business, right? If you have an idea and you're willing to work hard, um, you know, people will support you, um, tap into a network, um, create the support network and make it happen, right? Um, and for me, um, I'd like to, like, I like all aspects of business, right? So for me, um, it started off with thinking of a company name, thinking of, you know, what kind of a brand image do I want to convey out there, right? Because that's important. I could do, I can take the easy way out and just do, you know, Prasad Law Company, right? Or whatever, right? But I didn't want to just follow that generic path. It's like, you know, yeah, last name and, you know, it, I want to create something different, right? I want to do something different, right? I, I want to have an actual independent brand. Um, I want it to resonate with people. Um, I want it to be unique. I don't want to just say, you know, you know, law corporation or law firm, whatever it is. And Alpine Legal Service, when I thought of that, I just, I was like, you know what? I like this. Right. We provide legal services. Um, Alpine, we tied that into like the, you know, the mountains. I think a lot of people who live in Shallow Act, they love the mountains, right? Um, which is, you know, I love the mountains too, part of why I moved here. Um, but uh, you know, thinking about things like the name, the branding, the design, the logo, and the marketing, and um it, it took a long time. Like even though we started in October, we didn't we didn't really start getting clients doing business until December, right? Um, because you need time to set things up. Right. Um, you need to have your bank accounts, you need to be compliant with law society, you need to have all the insurance in place. You have to have all your ducks in a row. So when you open up your doors and people come to you, um, they can trust and rely on what you're offering them. Right. Um, so yeah, and the pen was part of it too, right? Um, it was because uh, I design all my stuff, right? Um, I just have an eye for what I want, and I found that um, when I do it myself, um, I can really put that vision into place. Um, because there's been some times where I've hired people, they don't share the same vision. And so, but for me, I place a lot of weight in, into this stuff, right? So if they don't share the same vision, and I'm like, you know what? Maybe it'll fly, but I don't know. I really want to control the images out there, right? Um, so when it comes to stuff like pens, um, people think, uh, a lot of people think of pens, oh, you just hand it out um, and they're expensive. So we'll get um, the cheapest pen we can and just produce as many as we can in order to get the cheapest, the most bang for your buck and just hand them out to clients, right? So your client walks out of your office, they've got a pen, it's got your logo on it. Oh, okay. And that's like the bare minimum, right? That's what, that's what people do. Um, but for me, I was, uh, I was signing something at some point, um, and I was using a branded pen from some other business and the pen literally just fell apart. Right. And I was at the bank also signing documents with the client and the, literally the pen that, the, that, that was being used, um, it fell apart. Right. And I'm like, really, you put your logo on something that's just cheap and not high quality and it falls apart and that people associate that with your image of your of your company your firm and it's just a small thing but it really resonates because when people are are using the pen they're actually using it to do something right and now it's falling apart and they got to find another pen it's an inconvenience and you know just so you can save like maybe 20 cents right and so for me it, it didn't make any like I, I didn't understand i'm like you know well if you're going to be investing it's an investment it's not an expense that's the way i view it right um you're investing in um merchandise the company's name on it um branded items um it's going to speak for your company your brand out there in the community right um like i've had hundreds of pens 
where they ended up, who's used it for what, I don't know, right? But um, they relied on it. And I know that what we have is high quality stuff, right? And it's good to at least know it's a, it's a very small thing, but I do invest that extra money into having that good stuff so people can rely on it. Like I have, we have branded umbrellas, right? It took me a long time to find the perfect umbrellas that um, you know are high quality, um, that have the right branding, the right color scheme, that look good and all serve a purpose. Because you know I've had I've used umbrellas that are branded from other companies, and you know when I use an umbrella. It's because I need it. It's raining. I need this. How many people keep more than one umbrella in their car? And imagine a company cheaps out on their umbrella and it's low quality and it's raining and you use it and the umbrella doesn't work. And now what do you do? Walk in the rain? And what are you going to think about the company that created that umbrella? Wow, you really offered low quality, you know, product and name on it. Um, you know, it's not going to really sit right with clients. So what's the point of even having it in the first place? You know, whereas for myself, we invested in having really high quality merchandise. So I know when someone is out there that my brand and umbrella, they're trying to support my business by keeping it and using it. And when it rains and they actually do use it, um, it's high quality enough where it won't just <laughs> break on them, leave them high and dry. Because um, I spent the extra money to make sure that they have quality equipment if they're going to be supporting our business, right? So, um, and it's paid itself off in other ways too. I have clients that come in and sometimes they're elderly, they have arthritis, they have issues with mobility, they can't move their hands in certain ways, right? Um, but I have the pen and the pen is very thick and it's got the grip on it. And so there's been clients who've come in and they can only, their mobility is very limited and they can only move their fingers so far. But if it was a thinner pen, they could not sign documents. But because this pen is thick enough, they can then use it to sign documents. And actually, we had clients who would take multiple pens because, like, you know what? This is the only size pen we can use um, for this person to write with, right? And that's important for them. Um, because can you imagine um, having that um, being that position where your, you know, your health, um, y- you physically can't sign documents, um, you know, that, that, they don't feel as good, right? And they, they feel like you have clients sometimes where they have difficulty signing and they, and they feel bad about it, right? And it's not their fault, right? It's like we need accessibility, right? So to have them do things, you'll use the pen. And I've had clients literally just cheer right up. Like, hey, look, I can sign. It's things like that where um, it's really neat that you know, something so simple can actually create that kind of a difference, right? Um, you know, but it's all the, the detail you put in right? Um, and it resonates with your business, right? So, um, and, and these are things that you see when people make business decisions. Well, um, oh, it's just a, it's a stupid pen. We're just going to hand them out to clients. Just get as many as you can for as cheap as we can. Just put a logo on it, the simplest thing, right? And then you sent out a bunch of pens that are going to fall apart and people use them. You sent out a bunch of umbrellas that will fold and people try to use them, right? Well, if that's your attitude towards your company's branding and your business, um, what is that going to say about your service, right? Um, and that's what people will think, right? So, you know, I don't, um, we don't uh, spare an expense when it comes to stuff like this because it's an investment in your company's branding, your logo, and that's everything, right? I think it's your, it's your brand. I think that that's brilliant. And I think that you set such a strong example of that. And I think so do Nina with Luna Float and Tim with Cowork Chilliwack. Like going through Cowork, it feels like such a high quality space. And as I told him in our full length podcast, 
like the toilet paper even has that quality where when you're in one of those big corporations, you start to lose a lot of the quality that you might expect because they're trying to save money uh, right. rather than trying to provide the best quality experience. And his point was, yeah, exactly. This is my office too. So I want it to be a positive experience, not only for me, but for everybody else using it. And I think that that's so valuable for entrepreneurs and small business owners to keep in the front of their mind is likely nobody is going to put in the time and care that you would if you take the time out and not to overlook something like the pen, which you so easily can do. It's important to slow down and make sure that each decision is made with intent and with purpose. I'm also interested to know what the what the process was to set up the business. Do you have to, did you know what bank you were going to use with um, both Nina and Tim? We talked about choosing your financial institution. How do you go about choosing the financial institutions you're going to work with when starting something like Alpine Legal Services, is it just who you know, and I just knew this person here, so I just went with TD? Or is there some sort of level of analysis that you apply to make sure that you're with the right financial institution? Yeah. Um, like, I, like I said before, when you start a business, it's good to have your core team of advisors, right? Uh, a business lawyer, um, an accountant, um, and a banker, right? To say the least, um, depending on nature of business, an insurance advisor, if you have a high-risk business, like there's, you need to have a core team of professionals, right? And the banker is a really crucial piece, right? Because um, for myself, we do a lot of real estate. Um, we work with all the banks, right? Um, they have mortgages, um, they have loans with clients, it's important for us to be able to have connections to all the banks, right? But for our own business banking needs, um, you'll have different institutions that can offer um, different things, right? So maybe maybe you'll have some bank that um, is really trying to pick up business with law firms and they have like a dedicated advisor um, who will be there, you call them any time of the day and they focus just on law firms, right? And they provide certain solutions that law firms really need. Like for example, a big thing for law firms is having a nice big line of credit because when business is not so good, because sometimes depending on where you practice, it's a seasonal business, right? Um, like real estate goes through cycles, right? So if you're relying on real estate volume and then sometimes it slows down, um, well, it helps to have a line of credit to pay the wages in the meanwhile, and then when things pick up, you can repay that, right? So cash flow is a big thing for law firms, right? Um, so maybe some banks out there really focus on that kind of solution for, for law firm clients. Maybe you'll have firms that... Um, are really focusing on small business. So they have a whole bunch of advisors that focus on deals of less than a million bucks um, and that they really specialize in those law operations, right? Um, and maybe that's your goal. I'm having an operation where um, maybe I won't need more than a million bucks to, to make this business work. Um, you're a smaller business and then you have someone dedicated to that. Whereas some banks may be focusing on like larger companies. They want like 30 to $100 million kinds of deals, right? Um, and they're really focusing on that, right? So... Or, or maybe there's different institutions that focus on different industries, right? Maybe some are really focused on agriculture, right? And if you're operating a farm or something like that, you really want those connections because um, that's your business, right? Maybe trucking, right? Trucking is a good one as well. Um, some institutions have a really good team that focuses just on those industries, right? So when it comes to doing your homework, um, you want to see things, okay, well, is this institution 
um, going to support my business, right? Because if if they're not willing to, then you know you're investing in that relationship as well, giving them your business. You want to make sure they're looking out for you, right? Um, so yeah, do your homework. Go out there, meet um, you know different bankers, um, see what they can do for you. Maybe they specialize in industry. Maybe get along with them. Maybe the bank can lend you more money based off of um, other criteria as opposed to just looking at hard financials. Um, you want to find out which institutions are going to support you the most um, and be there with you for long term. Because as your business grows, they've seen you from the ground up. They can then, you know, put in a good word, right? Maybe get you more access to credit, find other flexible needs to help your business, right? Um, it's really helpful to have that, right? So for for myself, I reached out to people I knew in the banking industry. Because um, again, as a real estate firm, we have accounts at every bank. We have to, right? Um, but at the same time, um, I want to have a good relationship with all the banks, right? And I know what kind of a role they fulfill, how they can help my business, and how I can also help them. Because the more I learn about that institution, then I can say, well, when I get a client, um, well, what are their needs? Hey, I think this bank will be a good fit for you. This credit union will be a good fit for you, right? And this is what they can offer. Um, talk to so-and-so from there, right? And if uh, I'll keep a couple of their business cards as well, you can talk, talk, talk around, right? Get, get a feel for it and find out who's a good fit for you, right? Uh, but it's important to have that banking relationship for sure. Um, if you're looking to start your business, sometimes people will say, you know what? Well, I have the money to start my own business today. Um, I don't want to have to go to the bank. It's like, well, it's not about that, right? It's about having access to capital in the future, having someone on your team who knows your business from the ground up since day one. That's a really good relationship to have right um yeah you definitely definitely have a really good banker in your corner that really helps i really appreciate that and i'm hoping that you could perhaps steel man the argument for the benefits of the larger banking institutions like td rbc um and scotia bank cibc these ones because we've heard uh nina she works with van city she has a great relationship uh it's clear that van city is a good financial institution um tim McAlpine, he's worked with um, Mount Lehman Credit Union. He uh, works with currency marketing. He supports credit unions within the U.S. So I've heard the strong, the steel man argument for why credit unions are great. But can you give us a little bit of the landscape on perhaps what we don't know about the larger banks and how they can be um, of value to small business owners? Right. So, yeah, I mean, that all also depends on your location. Right. So, for example, um, usually in smaller communities, not that Chilak is really small, but um, you have more of like a credit union center for stronger presence. Right. Because they are more focused in that community aspect of it. Right. Um, so there's so, for example, um, in those communities that are a bit smaller, uh, maybe the credit unions are more flexible in terms of lending to their clients, right? Because they're more tied into the community looking at it from that point of view, right? Whereas maybe some of the bigger banks might have said no to certain types of loans um, or deals with this personal business. The credit unions would be there to kind of, you know, still offer that service, right? So the people over the over the years, they build that relationship with the credit unions. And as the city grows and there's more options, um, they, st they still feel a connection to the credit unions, right? Um, but with the bigger retail banks, um, so, for example, um, for myself, when I was um, a student and I wanted to have a lot of credit so I can do things like fund my own businesses and things like that, um, I had a really hard time getting any kind of credit because I was ju I just had a credit card and a cell phone. Um, I didn't really have much to really establish much of a credit history, right? Um, so, when I went to the different credit unions, nobody would give me anything. Right. Um, it was all, you know, secured lines of credit, secured credit cards. And it's like, well, I don't have the money to secure a credit card and then borrow my own money back when I use a credit card. Right. Um, but then, um, certain retail banks, um, 
you know, because the, keep in mind, there also, there's also issues with like insurance and, and how to do business right, um, which is why some of these differences occur. Um, but they're willing to lend me um, a really generous line of credit, no security, nothing, just off the bat at a good rate, interest only. And I was like, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that, but uh, thanks. And so um, through that relationship, I was able to get access to all kinds of credit, right? Um, and even if I didn't need it or didn't use it, it's good to build that trust with the banks, right? So if they give me a larger line of credit or a larger credit limit, um, I have no plans. If I have no plans on using it, that's great. I can at least show them that if you give me this much access to capital, I'm not going to go out there and max it out and put the bank into potential jeopardy in terms of losing their um, money. If I default, um, I can be trusted with that credit limit, right? And so what happens then is over the years, you build that relationship with them. And then when you need money for things, um, whether it's for your business, whatever it is, you have the relationship, they'll support you, and you have that access to capital, right? Um, which I find a lot of people don't take advantage of as much as they probably should. Um, because, um, for example, I know I've got a good relationship with certain banks. I can walk in and I know I can get an insanely good rate on things like line of credit, auto loan, et cetera, because I've built it over so many years. And, you know, based on their business model, um, they can take more risks. So they're not as hesitant to grant me a certain amount of money, right? Um, whereas some other institutions, maybe they're a bit more cautious and reserved over those risks. And so they may not be willing to lend as much, or if they do, it's at a higher rate, right? So um, it's important in the community that you're in and the businesses, the business that you operate um, to really find the best fit for you in terms of banking and see, well, which institutions have my back, which institutions went to me more right uh, but sometimes it's a mix, mix of both right because i have um you know a few institutions i deal with and i might deal with them for different things right uh but I definitely talk to all of them right uh, and you want to build those connections right so um but if you don't even take the step to to, to build that, to ask around, to kind of see what's the right fit for you, um, then you end up with no fit. You end up with nobody in your corner, right? Um, and when you need the money, then you have no history, right? Because I know there's some people out there that maybe have wealthy families who finance their operations and things like that. And maybe it gets to the point where, well, now I need, uh, you know, external financial backer, like I need like a bank or a credit union, someone actually in my corner, uh, but I have no credit history. They have no corporate credit history. They have nothing, right? Um, and so how is the your bank? are going to go and try to get you credit if you have no history at all can they even trust you with unsecured debt do you have something they can secure um who are you you're a stranger to this institution we don't know you at all right um, whereas if you've known your your banker um, or your institution for like 10 years 15 years um they know you so even if things um even your business is having a hard time things look a little bit dicey they know your history they can you know um, pull a few strings and try to get some something for you to help you right um so yeah definitely want to make sure that um you really look at all your options, banks, credit unions, and really find that fit for you. Who's looking out for you in your, in your corners, giving you that advice. Right. Um, cause I've seen some, like I had a client who is in, uh, in trucking and they had two bankers I worked with. Um, one of them was, um, you know, really difficult in terms of lending the money, but they really knew the industry. And so they gave them all kinds of advice in terms of how to improve their company and their business. And on another end, you had someone who was willing to lend the money, but they couldn't really provide them any advice. Right. They didn't really know the industry, but they knew I can give you 50 grand tomorrow if you needed it. Right. So who do you want in your corner? Right. Maybe you want both, but may, or maybe you'll, maybe you'll, you know, try to go with what you have right now, improve your business, work with the person who knows your industry inside out, can help you with that kind of stuff. Right. Maybe you just want to take the money and 
figure it out um, on your own, right? Um, but what's your what's your long term like, right? So it's it's interesting to see that happen. But you definitely need a good banker in your corner, right? So whether it's through a major retail bank, maybe it's through a credit union, maybe it's through um, alternative investment firm or a capital management firm, whatever it is, you find your you find your team, right? And see who can really help you. That is really valuable information. I'm hoping that you can elaborate a little bit more. The information might date over time, right. but just having a quick understanding of different interest rates. What should people be looking for? What are good interest rates? What are bad interest rates? What's in the middle? Just a little bit of the landscape, because we've heard that um, the term interest rate said through all of the podcasts that we've done so far. And so I'm hoping you can just give a little bit of a breakdown of what people should be aiming towards or pushing towards um, in an ideal situation. Yeah, I mean, with with rates, like so, you have things like lines of credit. Um, you know, and the good thing about line of credit is that uh, it's accessible; it's there, right? So, if you line of credit, let's say it's a fifty thousand dollars line of credit, um, if I needed it tomorrow, I can just take the money out tomorrow, and I know what the rate's going to be. Usually, it's prime plus whatever. Um, and if it's secured, so if it's got, if it's tied to, you know, real estate or some kind of security, the rate's usually lower because the bank is secured. Um, if it's unsecured, rate's usually a little bit higher um, because unsecured. Um, if, if it's required to be insured, that's going to add a little bit to your cost. But um, it's still not that bad, right? So you see some lines of credit. Um, 6%, 8%, 10%, depending on your credit history for your business um, or for yourself. You have secure lines of credit. Sometimes they're super cheap, right? Looking at like 3% or, um, you know, um, depending on, again, your history with the, with the institution, um, the value of your security. Uh, but it's money you can just dip into. You don't need to go to a lawyer or the bank. You already, If you already have it, you have it, right? And then sometimes they'll have more flexible payment options. So you can do interest-only payments with some lines of credit. Sometimes they want a minimum principal payment with your interest payment, right? So you kind of see, okay, well, what's a good fit in terms of my operations? Um, you know, and then you go from there. Because maybe some institutions offering you a higher line of credit, but they have a minimum blended payment of a certain amount of principal and interest. So if you're someone who has a very seasonal business, maybe you care more about having lower cash flow commitments. So you'll take on the whatever gives you the lowest payment option. And then you know when business picks up again, you can make those payments more comfortably. You can pay off the principal, right? Or maybe you're someone who cares more about the actual cost of interest, right? So um, you don't mind making those blended payments. Um, we don't need to have, you know, maybe the lower interest only payments not something you consider important. Um, you want to make sure you can at least put something towards your principal and have it mandatory as part of your payments and then, you know, make that commitment. Um, it's up it's up to you, right? But different products, different different fits. Um, and then you have the credit card, right? So everybody knows how credit cards, um, what they do, right? You swipe, you buy something, it goes in your credit card and they have a gift statement at the end of the month, right? Um, but the thing is, is that with credit cards, the cost is really high. Right. Um, even if it is a secured card, because you're secured means you have like a, you know, um, letter of credit with the bank or some kind of savings account securing it. Like some companies have that where, for example, they might put $20,000 to savings account and that secures their credit card. So the rates are usually much better, but they can at least have the flexibility of accepting payments or, or, or making payments. Um, maybe it gets some kind of point benefit out of it, et cetera. Maybe it's an unsecured credit card. You're using it for your business operations or your personal needs, but the interest cost can really 
you know, build up, right? If you're not making those payments in full every month or at the end of each month, right? Um, so um, if you're someone who is, you know, struggling with debt, um, well, do I have a line of credit option? Because one of the things I've noticed during the um, pandemic, especially when people lose their jobs, they might have qualified for like a credit line last year, right? Uh, but now they lost their jobs. Now they can't get any credit at all. So they're stuck going to lenders who might charge a really high interest rate. Maybe they're stuck with lots of credit card debt. Whereas if they got that, you know, cheaper capital last year, um, had access to it at least, they could have now used that in the emergency, emergency, emergency situation to tie things over a bit more, right? So what I usually tell people is when times are good, that's when you should be looking to get more credit, right? Because times are good, right? Um, if you have... You know, if times are good, you got a job, um, maybe got a promotion or raise, you're not really too worried about things like that yet. Uh, that's the time to seek that credit limit, to seek that line of credit. Um, and then, you know, it's there, right? Because when times are tough, that's when it becomes really hard to get that credit, right? So for myself, um, personally, through my business, I'm always looking for more credit. Even if I don't have plans for it, I don't want to use it. I want to know that if things took a downturn and I needed access to capital or if I need access to capital to grow my business, the money is there and I know what's going to cost me. And I've, you know, I, I know it's there. I'm not waiting for a rainy day to look for that. Cause I know when that day comes, it's gonna be more expensive, right? So you want to always know your credit options. Um, and that could be a regular discussion with your banker, right? Um, I, and I do this all the time when rates are changing. Hey, um, should I, um, refinance now? What do you think is a good idea? Should I pull more equity out? Should I use it for something like this? Um, what's your opinion? And they'll let me know, right? What are my options, right? So again, when you have a relationship with your banker, you can have those discussions and really figure things out. Um, because, you know, as I've told you, um, my banking relationships have really paid off, right? By working on those relationships for like 14 years, right? Um, trying to build those connections and build that trust with the bank where um, I can get really good interest rates and get really favorable terms. Uh, but you've built it over time. Right. So a credit card, from my understanding, is like 19.98% interest. And you had made the comment earlier that uh, 2% interest on a mortgage is really good. So should people always be trying to move towards 2, 3, 4, 5, 6% interest rates? Is that ideal numbers? Or um, is there times that it's going to be 10%? What are kind of the, the interest rate numbers that we're looking at? Yeah, I mean, lines, lines, lines of credit usually involve like the prime rate, right? So as the prime rate changes, um, you know, your prime plus um, obviously go up. So if it's like prime plus three, and let's say the prime rate is like 4.5%, 4, 4, when you're paying 7.5% your line of credit, right? If it's... Um, you know, prime plus one and the prime rate's like 1%, well, then your line of credit super cheap, right? So it depends on what the prime rate becomes, right? Um, but the plus, right, um, that's usually impacted by your risk, right? So your credit risk. So if you're someone who um, is considered to be more of a risk, maybe your rate's like prime plus three, four, five, six, right? It just keeps going up compared to someone else who maybe they'll get like straight up prime. If they're like a super VIP client, maybe they'll get some kind of uh, mortgage like prime, like sub, you know, less than prime. Um, they'll get a rate that's like prime minus one or something like that, right? So it really depends on, and, and the thing is it changes all the time, right? So banks will um, have certain promotions. Maybe they'll have certain deals with certain clients. Maybe for certain types of mortgages or loans, they'll change their rates, right? It really depends what you're trying to focus on. Um, but you always want to know your options and try to gravitate towards the lowest interest, uh, your lowest cost of borrowing option, right? So for example, um, 
let's say you're someone who doesn't have a house or a property and you can't get um, a secured line of credit like a HELOC. Um, you can't get um, a mortgage, right? Because um, some institutions will end what they call, it's like a blended plan where um, you get a mortgage and line of credit together into like a mortgage security on your house um, or your property. And then you can get the benefits of both a mortgage and line of credit at the same time. Um, so you have all kinds of access to capital. But if you don't have property, well, then what do you do? Then you're usually looking at lines of credit, right? Um, well, you know, what, what are the factors going into that, right? And as the economy changes, as things change, rates change, um, you know, there's a discussion with your banker, right? Um, can I get more credit? Right? Can I? Because let's say you land a credit's like five thousand bucks, and you find that you you need about ideally ten thousand bucks would be a good limit, right? Um, but because you don't have the line of credit limit, you're now stuck using your credit card for the balance. Now you're paying twenty something percent interest on your credit card, right? Um, but if you stay in touch with your banker and they give you a shout and say, you know what? Uh, for your situation, we can do 20 grand based on what's going on right now. We can get you 20 grand. Uh, do you want to put that in place for your business or not? Well, now you just save yourself a ton of money, right? Because now you can use that cheaper cost of, um, you know, that cheaper cost of borrowing. You have that, that, that option. You're not relying on a credit card as much. Um, now you have that, right? But what surprised me was so many people don't even ask for a line of credit. They don't even know what a line of credit is. They just look at credit cards and a house mortgage. They don't even know about things like lines of credit, right? But again, if you have discussions with your banker, um, we'll tell you about your options, right? And what you have available and how to structure your debt, right? Excuse me, because some debts are viewed differently. For example, student loans, right? Um, I know some people who say, well, um, I've got enough money to not need student loans for the short term. Um, but, um, you know, I don't feel comfortable going into debt. But I tell them, well, hey, look, um, just because you don't need it now doesn't mean that you won't need it ever, right? Things come up. Um, and I've seen people who didn't take out student loans um, and they dipped into the funds, emergency comes up, they depleted all their funds, um, but now they don't qualify for as much assistance or aid and now they're stuck because of what do you do if you don't qualify, but um, you need to you need the money to go to, go to school, right? Um, because they're too afraid to go into debt. Well, student loan debt is viewed very differently from, you know, other consumer debt, right? So, you know, it's not really going to hurt you, right? Um, and usually debt's really cheap, right? Because they've limited interest rate on student loans and stuff like that, right? So um, if you qualify and you need that assistance, then sure, you know, get the student loan. And then what, And then if you have money at the, end of the t at the end of your education, you can put that towards your loan. You can put that towards whatever, right? But at least you have that security. You know it's there, right? Um, whereas if you don't use that and then you don't have access to that anymore, well, now what do you do? Right. So different types of debt uh, are viewed differently. And then student interest loan is actually tax deductible. You can deduct off your income taxes. Whereas if you actually take the loan out from the bank, you can't just use that towards, you can't use that as student loan interest, right? Um, you're paying the full pop. You're not getting, you're not getting a deduction out of it. Um, so, you know, that's what I would do is even when you're starting university, right? Meet with your banker and just say things like, you know, um, can I get a student line of credit? Can I just get a line of credit, right? If you're in a professional program, like your accounting designation, law school, um, you know, if you're in engineering or medicine, whatever it is, sometimes banks have special programs, right? Where they give you a certain line of credit to be cover your education costs, right? And that can be an ancillary to um, government student assistance, but then you know you have something there, right? But if you don't exercise that at all, then you end up often having uh, more expensive debt available to you, right? Which is just going to hurt you in the long run, right? So always ask, right? Because if you don't ask, you don't receive, right? So um, 
But for me, I always um, try to always ask um, for things like lines of credit, increased credit card limits. And that just opens up the door to having cheaper access to credit over the years, right? Because at the end of the day, um, it, especially in real estate, you see that um, you can have a certain um, type of deal or in business, a certain type of business um, where the operations are there. It really comes down to how you do your financing. Because if you have really bad access to capital, and you go um, and finance a certain deal, it's not profitable for you anymore. But if you have a really good history and you have really cheap access to capital, well, it's profitable for you because your cost of borrowing is so low, right? Um, like, for example, look at um, you know some of these CEOs, these big, big corporations. Most of their wealth is tied up in these stocks, right? It's not like an ATM that can just go and you know cash it out. Um, they have to maybe hold on to these stocks. So they can't sell it because the stock price will dip. They have certain contractual obligations. But what they do is they borrow money against their stocks, right? So you know, if you're someone like Jeff Bezos, you've got hundreds of billions of dollars tied up in all these stocks. Um, you think the bank will use that as security to give you a loan? Of course they would. And then what's the interest rate? Probably nothing, right? But that's a really extreme example. But um, even at a smaller scale, you want to do things to make yourself more attractive to lenders. So when you do need the money, it's there, it's cheap, right? It's accessible. That's, right? So That's so valuable for people to understand because I think you're right. I think so many people who are entrepreneurs or small business owners, they have a product or they have a service that they think they can provide and it's going to be the best service. And they don't think about how financing and how being strategic with their money is going to help their idea succeed long term and how that investment in getting to know your banks could pay dividends long term that they didn't consider when they were starting out. I'm hoping that you can, and this is how we'll wrap it up, walk us through the process of starting a business from your perspective. When should the business plan come about? When should they come to Alpine Legal Services to incorporate? How much is incorporation typically uh, if they're incorporating in the Fraser Valley? When should they be connecting with uh, Community Futures, South Fraser, North Fraser, or Stolo Community Futures? When uh, should they be opening their doors? How should they approach um, just the process of starting a business? Yeah, so the first step is um, really figuring out what it is that you want to do. Do you have a service-based business? Are you going to be manufacturing something, producing something? What do you want to provide? And how do you want to provide it? So you have to have a basic understanding of at least what you're going to be doing out there when you set up your business, right? Um, and you want to gauge, well, what's the demand for this business, right? How am I going to actually make money from this, right? Um, and so having that discussion and just kind of figuring it out, um, thinking about it, putting the details onto paper, because maybe you have a really um, great product or a really great skill. Um, what if there's no demand for it, right? Um then why are you going to differentiate yourself? What's the differentiation strategy there, right? And so these are the discussions that, um, you know, you can have with your peers, your colleagues, um, or just figure it out on your own. But um, organizations like Community Features are great, right, in helping um, entrepreneurs. Um, you know, they, they do a lot of really great work. Um, you know, uh, so you want to make sure you at least figure those details out, have a business plan. That's crucial because um, that's where you start to lay out. Well, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? What's your mission? What's your vision? What what, what guides you? What's your end? What's your end goal there? Um, what do your numbers look like? Your projections. Um, you want to have a plan uh, so that way when you actually do go into business, um, you've already thought about a lot of these details and you can start putting it into action. Because the last thing you want is to go in with no plan and then issues come up and I have no way of dealing with it. Right, um, and that's when it becomes 
becomes very difficult to to deal with what you have going on. Whereas if you plan in advance, you at least have some kind of a you know um, backup, fallback um, plan B. You have some way of dealing with it already in place. You thought about it, right? Because your business plan, it, it, it's it's not you know crystal ball. It's it's you know, we don't look at it thinking, oh, your business is going to go like this 100%. We just look at it and see like, how much information, how much research have you, have you done? How much information is there? And it's like a rough tool. It's like a guideline, right? And if you have a really detailed plan and you've really done your homework, um, bankers look at that and they want to see not just, well, dollars and cents, what are you looking at here? They want to see, well, how committed are you to your business? What have you thought of? What are all the risks? Because banks are all about risk, right? Um, what are the risks for your business? How have you done? What have you done to manage those risks, to mitigate those risks? There's always going to be risk, right? But what have you done to show that you understand those risks, that you've planned for those risks, right? And if you can go in and show like, listen, this is who I am. Um, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to provide. There's a demand for it. And in providing that, um, um, these are the costs and these are the risks for my business. And this, this is how I've, you know, this is how I plan to mitigate and manage those risks. Well, now you look way more attractive to the institutions, right? They'll lend you the money, they'll help you out. And then when you do start business, um, it's more, um, you're more prepared, you're more ready. So then when push comes to shove, you can actually fall back on plan B right away and then continue on with your business instead of just struggling and then trying to think about what's going on. And then your business is operating. You have all these moving parts. It becomes overwhelming. Um, no, you've got a plan. You can stick to the plan. So a business plan is very crucial. It's very critical. Um, you know, like when I, when I started out, um, I knew, okay, well, what kind of service am I going to provide? What price point am I going to provide those services at? What are my costs? What am, what's my monthly fixed committed overhead? Um, and how will I cover that? Will I have enough business to cover that? Will I have to dip into savings? Like, what's my plan for that, right? And then once I know, okay, well, these are my committed monthly cost projections. Um, I'll need to generate this much money to break even. Um, I'll, I'll need this much money to at least um, hit the point where business is starting to do okay. Um, and then this is the point where I should be starting to hire people and do this and do that. And I can afford to expand and things like that, right? So um, you want to make sure that's taken care of in the beginning, right? Um, so at that point in time, you can then, you know, more confidently start your business, right? Um, but that being said, there's some people out there where they just act, they just go along with it, right? And it works out for them, right? But the issue with that is that when things don't go so well or when you need money from the banks, institutions, you have no plan in place, you become more of a risk, right? And so... Um, the biggest thing I think is risk mitigation, right? You're never going to be able to completely eliminate risk, but you want to be able to at least identify it and mitigate it, right? That's what accountants do. That's what lawyers do, right? Uh, we try to find ways to mitigate risk for a client, right? So um, it's not about just taking risks blindly. It's about taking very calculated risks, right? That's what it's about. So that's what I've noticed with a lot of really great business people. Um, you have some who just take a blind risk and it works out for them, right? But that's not everybody, Right. Because I could have easily gone the other way. And there's lots of people out there who just, they jump in. They're really good at doing a certain thing. They want to monetize on it right away. They jump in blind, cold, um, and things don't work out so well because they didn't plan for anything and everything just kind of goes in the wash, right? Whereas calculated risks, when I thought of everything in advance, right? So I would prefer um, understanding those risks and looking at those risks in advance getting the advice you need to mitigate those risks and then looking in terms of, okay, well, what, what do I need to start? right? Do I need to have a physical location to do my business? Can I share a space? Um, can I um, temporarily rent a space? Like, what do I need to get started? What's the equipment that I need? How much is it going to cost? Um, where am I going to store it? 
what are my insurance requirements? So in case something happens, you don't want to you don't want to lose everything you have, right? If if you get sued, um, you want to make sure you're insured, and that way also builds um, security for your clients, where they know if they do business with you, and let's say things go something something happens, right? Um, that you're insured, they can at least take care of them, right? They have that in place. So insurance. Um, and the right structure for your business, right? Maybe for some people, it's okay to be incorporated for a bit, right? It's easier to start. It's simpler. Um, you have lower accounting and legal costs to deal with the, you know, some proprietorship. Uh, but the risk is there because the business, business is in your name, right? Um, so, you know, incorporation, therefore, becomes really attractive for a lot of people um, because of tax planning benefits, right? Um, you have a separate legal entity, um, you have that liability protection because it is a separate entity, um, you know, and if you have a lawyer and accountant, you already know, um, yeah, piece it together, your annual cost will be, you know, obviously there, right? It's going to cost you, you know, maybe, well, you have the corporate tax attorney every annual filings, maybe $1,000, $1,500 a year, right-ish, um, but first, compared to the benefits of incorporation, uh, maybe it's worth it for that business point in time, right? Um, um, let's say you want to start, you want to have a plan. So you start getting the feelers for your team. Once you've got a bit of a plan, you can talk to your banker, get a lawyer, accountant on board, um, and then start putting the wheels into motion, right? Um, and really, you know, and then that, you have, that we have your people in your corner that can see your business from the ground up. They can give you advice on things too, right? Because uh, maybe you haven't thought about you know, a certain risk or how to mitigate a certain risk, but your bankers dealt with many clients like this. They can help you in that, right? Maybe the lawyer will say, well, the way you're doing things, sure, but this is the risk that you expose yourself to if you do things this way. And this is how we can manage those things, right? Um, even things like service contracts. Well, you set up a business, um, you have clients, you have a service contract. Is your contract going to protect you? Because what if you end up in a dispute with your client, right? There's uncertainty there. Um, well, getting a lawyer to look at that contract to begin with um, is more cost effective than going to court over this now, right? Um, and you don't want to go to court with your clients, right? So, but having a lawyer draft certain contracts and agreements, well, now you've got that certainty, it, it pays dividends, right? Um, and you're accounting, right? You want to know, how's the business doing? How much money did I make, right? Where's the money going? Um, accounting can tell you that kind of information, right? Um, whereas if you don't have an accountant and you just look at your bank balance, well, what does bank balance really mean? Did I, did, um, am I in a good position right now? How much of this money is for GST? How much is for PST? How much is for payroll? Um, how much is actually a profit? You don't know, right? So you don't really know how well your business is doing. So, um, you know, you want to make sure that you reach out to the right people, um, get them on board, uh, focus on mitigating your risk, um, and then, you know, following their advice, following your gut, um, doing what you're good at and just building your business. That is amazing. What can somebody expect if they're about to start their business and they're about to incorporate? What is the process when they come into Alpine Legal Services? How much do they have to pay approximately? And what are some of the benefits? Because we had privately talked about minute books and I didn't even know that that was a thing. So could you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah, so usually... Um before someone meets with a lawyer to incorporate their business, they've already been in touch with an accountant, right? Because you're going to have to do things like file GST, PST, maybe WCB, um, income tax. So, you know, they work with their accountant. And then the accountant might say, like, you know, hey, look, um, you have intellectual property in your business. Maybe you want to keep it separate, right? Maybe you want to have a holding company and then a separate company for yourself to kind of protect your assets, uh, maybe for tax planning. Um, and maybe it's a good time to talk to a lawyer, right? Um, so that's 
most time that's the scenario we see because you'll have someone who's a business owner. They just started up. Things are going well. They have an accountant, um, but they don't really know too much of the legal side of things. Um, and now, you know, they're encouraged to get that legal advice. Um, ideally, you have it from the beginning, right? But, um, you know, sometimes people set up their business, they just jump into it um, and they kind of build as they go along. Um, and then they talk to the lawyer and then we would discuss, um, well, is a corporation right for you, right? What What's involved in a corporation? So um, every corporation has to have a set of corporate records. Um, it's called the minute books and you have to have certain records as part of those minute books um, to be compliant with the Business Corporations Act. Um, and when you go and set up a corporate bank account um, where you get corporate Sorry, uh, corporate financing. They're going to want to see your minute books. They want to make sure it's maintained by a lawyer, that it's accurate, up to date, because the minute books will tell you, um, it keeps a record of who owns the shares in the company, who are the directors of the company, um, making sure that all the necessary filings and resolutions have been have been kept, or the records have been kept, so that it can stand to scrutiny from the government, the CRA, you know, whoever, right? That it's the legal company, it's in good standing, um, you know, and the lawyer can provide that assurance. Um, some people maintain their own minute books, which I never recommend because we don't really charge, it's like 275 a year for us to do it for you. Um, it's not a huge cost to have a lawyer maintain your minute books. Um, they know it's actually been taken care of. Um, so I had some clients try to do it themselves and they it's not the most exciting thing and they're going to forget about it. They're going to fall behind in their filings. Um, and then if you fall behind and you miss a couple filings where your company can get struck, which means it pretty much gets dissolved automatically. Um, and then you don't really have a company, but at the same time you are doing business. So now you're stuck in a big mess it's going to cost quite a bit more to then reinstate your company um whereas if you have a lawyer maintaining your books to begin with it's you don't really think about it and worry about it right um i have some clients who you know they didn't maintain their books at all and it's going to cost them a lot more to pay me to then have to go back in time and put everything in place get them to sign things and you know fix everything right it's going to cost more to fix it than to do it right in the first place right so um you know it's not a big cost just go, go talk to a lawyer you know get the corporation done if that's in the best interest of the company um and the clients um we charge a thousand bucks corporation right we have a standard corporation um if it's more complex than that it obviously is going to cost more um that's the that's the base price that's all inclusive taxes disbursements everything it's a thousand bucks out the door um you get a company set up right um and then from there you want to have a shareholders agreement in place so if you have more than one person involved in the company owning the shares you want to make sure the relationship between you two are governed and the shareholders agreement is a good way of doing that um and that's extra right that depends on what you, what you agree to, right? If it's a basic agreement, sure. If you have more complex agreement, then that's going to obviously cost more, but it provides a kind of certainty in terms of your relationship with the other shareholders of the company. Um, yeah, right. The county usually starts a discussion. Ideally, it's a discussion a client has a lawyer from the beginning. Um, but yeah, you want to make sure your company set up properly. You have a lawyer maintaining your records. And that way, you can just go to the bank and they'll say, where's your corporate records? Well, lawyer can send it to the bank right away. You're done. You've got your corporate account. You have access to, um, you know, corporate lending. Whereas if you don't have those records in place, you don't have your company set up properly, then you're not going to get your financing, right? It's going to become more difficult, right? right? Um, but yeah, we have the discussion with clients and we also talk about things like uh, insurance. 
um, why you want to have insurance, how it protects you, because certain businesses, um, let's say it's a home-based business, you have a corporation, um, well, the home is still in your name. So what if someone, you know, slips and falls in your property, you have a home-based business, um, you know, you can't just rely on the corporate shield. Um, are you insured properly? Is your, is your home insured properly? Is your business insured properly? Um, have you thought about this at all? Because um, that's the last thing you want is, you know, maybe someone runs like an Airbnb off of their property. Well, now it's used for commercial purpose, right? Uh, maybe it's not even allowed if your city bans short-term rentals, but you're doing it anyways. What if someone gets hurt? Are you insured? Who's going to cover the cost? Are you going to pay personally? Um, so things like that, you want to make sure the insurance private's covered. So you should tell clients, you know, you want to talk to an insurance broker who can help you with this, right? Because you want to make sure you're insured um, so you can run your business with more certainty, right? Um, or maybe they don't have an accountant yet. They're just trying to start a company and the first thing to do is talk to a lawyer, right? Um, so reach out to me first and I'll tell them all, you know, you want to make sure you talk to an accountant because when we set you up with your company, you'll get your CRA business number. And then your accountant can advise you in terms of setting up your GST and PST accounts, right? WCB accounts. How often do you have to make remittances? How does that work, right? Because you don't want to fall behind on those remittances either because you have to you have penalties. Uh, and then you're in trouble with the CRA and they're going to ask you questions about that. And you don't have time to deal with your GST and PST. You don't even know what to do. Um, but if I'm an accountant from the beginning, they can manage that for you, right? So... Um, these are discussions I have with clients when they set up their company, um, you know, and then I advise them because they probably don't even know, right, those steps, but I'm on their team. I advise them um, and leave my office having a sense of certainty. Okay, well, now I know I can get my company set up. I'll be incorporated. My account will set up the GST, PST, and then as of this date, um, you know, this is what I should be doing, and they feel more confident and moving forward, right? Um, and then e even small things like, for example, how you market yourself out there. Um, let's say, for example, I have, um, you know, a business, let's say Chanel's landscaping, right? And it's, as I say, you know what? Um, there's some liability here. Um, I want to incorporate and have a separate entity for my company um, and kind of keep it separate from my own personal being, right? Um, so I incorporate a business, but um, so now it's Chanel, Chanel's Landscaping Incorporated, right? But let's say that my business cards, my invoices, all just say Chanel's Landscaping. So you know what? I've already invested money in um, these items, um, I don't want to spend more money getting stuff that says corporation on it, right? Um, well, now what you've done is no one no one knows that they're doing business with the corporation. They're doing business with you, right? And as far as they're, they have no idea about your corporate entity, right? Um, so what happens then legally is if you do get sued, um, they can still sue you personally. So you can rely on that corporate structure because now um, you haven't put yourself out there as a corporation, right? You should get everything redone to, sh to show that, hey, look, you're, um, you know, Chanel's Landscaping Incorporated. The people know, oh, I'm doing business with the corporation, right? But it's, it's those little things people don't think about, but legally it's actually very important, right? Um, and then for certain professionals, it doesn't really matter because you, there's no corporate bail. You're still liable um, for certain things. So, you know, it's you know, that's just professional regulation, right? But uh, with clients, you have those discussions about things like insurance, liability, because those are the big areas, right? It's risk mitigation. That's what we do. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's, yeah, that's what we do for clients. I really appreciate you being willing to take the time. Once again, it was about a year since our first full length podcast. I really think that 
this really summarizes the information from our previous guests really well so that people can have a greater understanding of who to talk to in a financial institution, who to talk to as a lawyer, um, how to get the ball rolling on these ideas. Because I think sometimes when we're networking and when we're having simple conversations, these tough, more complex conversations about interest rates and about investing and about inflation, they don't get had. And so people are on worse footing when they're starting their business without information that you've shared today. So I, again, want to thank you for taking the time to share and to kind of summarize the information we've gotten out of this mini series. And I hope that it's valuable for listeners. Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope so as well. Um, because I, th I think that what discourages a lot of people from um, entrepreneurship and um, you know making these decisions when it comes to finances is it's so overwhelming. There's a lot to know, and some people get bogged down. They go, oh, "It's it's too much. It's too scary. It's you know, let's talk about money and risk," and th they get too bogged down. Um, but um, you know, it's it's. Sure, it may be a lot to learn, but there's there's resources. There's people who can help you, right? And one of the things you find in in business is that you know what? There's a lot of support out there, right? There there's people willing to help you and support you, and you know it's one of those things you can bond with the business owners over, right? So yeah, as you'll notice that uh, you have certain entrepreneurs, business owners, they know others, right? Who are also business owners, and they talk about things, talk about their businesses, right? They support each other. Um, so you might feel, you know, maybe it's too late. I mean, I've already, I'm already in debt, and it's really difficult. I find it really hard to get out of this. Um, you know, I'm, I want to start a business, but there's too many steps. It's too confusing. Um, I know how to do my work, but I don't know anything about accounting or the law or finances, and it's just too scary. Um, no, that's, uh, we can understand, like everybody goes through that, right? It's uh, daunting, it's, it's scary, it's timing at first, but, you know, just start, right? Just take the first step, and it's not as bad as you think it is. Um, there's there's answers out there. You're not the first person to go into business. The answers are out there. Um, just find the right people, the right team, and just, just start, and then uh, eventually you get there, right? Just don't let it bog you down. Don't let it discourage you, um, you know, from doing what you're going to do in your life, right? But, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people do feel discouraged, but no, you don't need to feel discouraged at all. Just, just start, take a first step, um, and then you'll be surprised how far how far you'll go, right? But, uh, you know, don't feel intimidated or scared by what you don't know. There, You know, you got to start somewhere, um, but just take that first step and just uh, just get going, right? And then uh, your team will be there to support you, and uh, you'll be surprised what you can accomplish, right? It's, you know, it's it's not as bad as you think, right? There's always a way. That is the perfect way to end this. Thank you again for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Aaron, for having me.